Hi, everyone. I am Becky Davidson. I chair ACB's Pedestrian Environment Access Committee. And along with Sheila Styron, who chairs ACB's Transportation Committee, we are pleased to welcome you to tonight's workshop, a, pres a conversation with Kelly Buckland from the Department of Transportation. Just a, a couple of announcements. I mean, first of all, I would like to introduce the panel, and then I will explain how this is going to go. Um, with us here in the room is Clark Rockfall, who is um, Director of Advocacy and Governmental Relations for ACB, and Swatha Nandakumar, who is Advocacy Specialist with ACB. And on Zoom, we have Claire Stanley, who is a Policy Analyst with National Disability Rights Network, and of course, um, our speaker, Kelly Buckland. What we have done is we've had some questions submitted to us that we're going to ask Kelly to respond to. If during the course of this presentation, or if you have something right now that you would like to ask, we ask that you email your questions to advocacy at acb.org. That's advocacy at acb.org. And we will do our best to, to get them answered. And if not, we will still have the questions that we can follow up with. So on that note, I'm glad you're all here, both in person and on Zoom. And I'm going to turn this over to Claire Stanley. Great. Thank you so much, Becky. Um, like Becky said, everybody, I'm Claire Stanley. I am uh, Sheila Styron's co-chair for the Transportation Committee um, and former staffer from ACB. I'm so excited to be here tonight. I wish I was there in person. I was supposed to be there in person, but COVID said otherwise. Um, but I'm very excited to be here anyway. And I'm going to go ahead and do a quick introduction to our wonderful speaker. Um, I'm so honored that Kelly uh, was able and agreed to speak to us tonight. So I'm going to go through his bio and then we're going to jump into our questions. Um, so Kelly Buckland is a person with a disability who has been actively involved in disability issues since 1979. He served for over 20 years as the executive director of Living Independence Network Coalition and the Idaho State Independent Living Council in Boise, Idaho. He's been honored with numerous state and national awards, including the University of Idaho President's Medallion, the Hewlett Packard Distinguished Achievement in Human Rights Award, Outstanding Alumni of Boise State, and Outstanding Alumni of Drake University. Additionally, Kelly has a long history with the National Council on Independent Living, or NICL. He served as NICL's Vice President from 2001 to 2005, its President from 2005 to 2009, and its Executive Director from 2009 just up until 2021. He graduated from Boise State with a Bachelor of Arts in Social Work and from Drake University with a Master's in Rehabilitation Counseling. He is now the Disability Advisor for the Secretary of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg, under the Biden administration. Kelly, thank you so much for being with us. We're really honored. Uh, and with that, I, I think we'll jump in. Hi, Claire. Good to be here. We're very happy to have you here. Um, wish you were here in person, but it's raining really hard right now. So anyway, <laughs> I, I took my dog out. I'm a little damp. And speaking of guide dogs... The first question has to do with the Department of Transportation's uh, attestation forms for those of us who fly with our guide dogs. Yeah, you did, didn't you? Um, we're continuing to con encounter some issues with, with these required attestations, including um, inaccessible forms and inconsistent implementation 
uh, by the airlines of the regulations. Is there any possibility of getting these uh, burdensome uh, regressive requirements um, reversed? And if so, what might be the timeframe for this change to happen? And also the other part of this is I know the Department of Transportation has indicated that these forms must be accessible um, and how can we make sure that that happens in a timely manner? Okay, so um, to answer the first question, uh, I don't think we can get them reversed. This is, uh, as people know, some of this was as a result of a regulation negotiation with um, with the airlines that happened with the Department of Transportation back in, um, I think it was 2016. Uh, and there was a group of us that come up with proposed uh, alternative to what actually went into effect. This is back when I was at, still at Nickel and uh, it didn't look anything like this. And that was not accepted by the airlines and so there was no consensus on it. So the department developed their own rules uh, back then. And uh, so I doubt that they're going to be reversed. Uh, but this really is a question for uh, Blaine, uh, who is at the uh, Consumer Protection Division of FAA. And I have mentioned to her that people are still having problems with uh, having to fill the form out repeatedly because uh, I don't think you should have to do that, but uh, and that's still in conversation with her. Uh, but um, I will continue to advocate to make these as as least burdensome as possible. But the possibility of getting them reversed, I don't think, is very good. All righty, hi Kelly. Um, this is Swatha. It's great to have you here. Um, so many of our members have heard the Infrastructure and Jobs Act, or IAJ. Um, but many might know might not know how to how to use the programs, um, the laws, funding, and programs. Um, so, how may our members use this um, law, the IAJ, and its funding to um, improve their neighbor- neighborhoods and environment around them? So, uh, there's a couple of things I think. Uh, you can do that would be really helpful. One is uh, if you're not following the notice of funding opportunities that are coming out of the department, uh, I highly recommend you do that because we are sending out notices of funding opportunities. And and I'm not exaggerating almost daily Um, with that, with the jobs infrastructure act that you're talking about Swatha, and then the, uh, on top of that, the bipartisan infrastructure law, we're, there's almost a trillion dollars that we're spending. So, I mean, I, I still have a hard time even wrapping my head around how much money that is. But um, there, so there are uh, notices of proposed funding opportunities going out uh, regularly, and they're they're posted on the website when they go out. And uh, there's some of those that. Uh, your members may well be um, eligible to apply for, uh, but you should watch the ones that your state can apply for as well. And there are requirements for them to um, 
to um, engage with uh, community members around how they're going to spend a lot of that money. And so uh, they have to engage with community members. And so you should reach out to them uh, and ask to be part of the community members that they engage with. So both your state and local folks have to do that. So reach out, tell them if they're going to apply for some funds, you'd like to be part of their community engagement and then uh, help direct where that money is going to go in your communities to, to, um, and what it's going to be spent for. Great. Speaking of funding, um, can you um, sort of walk us through the funding priorities for um, DOT for this administration? This year at least. Well, um, the funding the funding is pretty much directed in the in both of those acts, so it's not like DOT can like make uh, priorities other than what's in the bills. So that's where the money's going to be spent. But I can uh, I think what you're really asking is what our policy priorities are going to be. Am I right about that? I believe so. Yeah. Um. Yes. So, uh, since I came here, uh, we've been developing the policy priorities for people with disabilities. And those basically fall into four categories. The first one is uh, safe and accessible air travel. And there's going to be several rulemakings around that. Most of them affect people who uh, use wheelchairs. One of them is going to be uh, making damage to a wheelchair uh, a per se violation of the Air Carrier Access Act. The other one will, will require airlines to uh, safely transfer people from their chairs to the aisle chairs and the aisle chairs uh, to the seat and then back to their wheelchair and then back uh, or back to those aisle chair and then back to their wheelchair. And by that, we mean by not harming people because right now, uh, I don't know if you've heard this but the PVA did a study uh, or survey and uh, out of like 1500 people I think 20% of them said that they had been dropped during the transfer and in fact the board chair had been dropped broke his tailbone and uh, was turned into a, a wound which then got infected and he was in the hospital for six months and came close to dying. And that happens more regularly than you would think. People get hurt uh, and injured and sent to the hospital just being transferred to a plane seat. So uh, that is the second one. And it would require also for them to be, the personnel who are doing that to be trained um, at least twice a year. Now, the particulars about who's going to do the training and all that sort of stuff will have to sort of be delineated in the rule. Uh, but uh, that's, uh, and then the real fix to that is also is basically people being able to fly in their own wheelchairs. So we're going to be doing some uh, research and some planning around how we get from where we are now to people actually being able to fly in their own wheelchairs. The second one, uh, the second pillar is the what's known as PROAG or the Public Rights of Way Accessibility Guidelines. And uh, we're working with the Access Board to get those finalized 
it looks like uh, they may be out like around the first of the year. And then making sure that all of this money that's being spent uh, around roads, bridges, sidewalks, all that kind of stuff is going to be spent according to the uh, accessibility guidelines. And the third one is uh, actually jobs, which uh, um, there's going to be a, a bunch of jobs um, come out of the infrastructure spending. And we think people with disabilities ought to have or ought to get their fair share of those jobs. So we're going to be focusing on putting a priority, especially for federal contractors, to be hiring uh, people with disabilities. As you know, they're required to do that under 503. And so we're uh, going to be looking at that both in contracting with uh, federal contractors and the implementation of both of those uh, spending bills we talked about earlier. Uh, and then the fourth and the final one is uh, making sure that electric and autonomous vehicles are accessible. Uh, so uh, that's probably actually going to take uh, some legislative uh, work to get that, to get us the authority to do work around that. But we are uh, going to make that a priority as well. And then just really back to some vigorous enforcement of the ADA and the Air Carrier Access Act. I mean, I think people have almost like stopped filing complaints because it sort of feels like their complaints go into the abyss and never, nothing ever happens to them and they never hear back. So we really want to start cranking up the enforcement around the ADA and the Air Carrier Access Act of 504 and actually have um, penalties in place when people violate those. So uh, that's the four pillars. And then, uh, as I said, just generally the uh, enforcement of the ADA. So those are kind of the policy priorities. Uh, you should hear some announcements around those coming out of the department uh, very shortly, probably during ADA uh, Pride Month, as it's being called now. Um, and then some other announcements that you're going to see coming out are the Notice of proposed uh, funding opportunity on the All Stations Accessibility Program. Uh, that was part of the bipartisan infrastructure law. And the notice of proposed funding opportunity is going to be going out this month. And the Air Passengers uh, with Disabilities Bill of Rights will also be uh, coming out and being published this uh, month. In fact, probably this week. So um, those are some other announcements that have come out in regards to policy. Okay. Well, thank you, Kelly. Um, this is Becky again. Uh, I, I, we had a presentation here the other day from Sarah Presley of the U.S. Access Board talking about the Public Rights of Way Access Guidelines, or PROAG. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about, about how the DOT is working with the Access Board uh, to jumpstart this uh, process and also um, as it relates to the manual on uniform traffic control devices, which is the first time I've said that without stuttering, or the MUTCD. Or the what? The MUTCD, the manual on uniform traffic control devices. Uh, well, I'm not too familiar with that, so I'm not sure I can speak to that. I can get back to you about it, though. Uh, but 
as far as ProAg goes. So the way this works, and, I, and I'm really under, I'm starting to understand after being here a little bit, that there are actually a lot of stuff we work with the Access Board on. Uh, I didn't really realize how closely the Department of Transportation works with the Access Board, but there's a number of things that we work uh, very closely with them on. Um, elect- the accessibility of electric um, charging stations is one of them we're working with them, them on now, um, as well as PROAG, as well as uh, train regulations. I mean, the list goes on and on. I, there's really a lot of things we work together with them on. But as far as PROAG, we have been working on that with them for some time. Uh, right now, that's kind of in their um, in their court. We've been going back and forth uh, with them on some uh, the stuff that the Federal Highway Administration uh, has been asking for in there. So it's sort of like a give and take thing. And then also, you probably know that the Department of Justice is involved in a lot of these things as well. So it's really kind of a three-way working relationship between us, the Access Board, and the the, um, the Department of Justice. And if you'll if you'll give me that, like in the chat or something. Um, the name of that, I'll go back and find out what we're doing around that and get back to you. Kelly, this is Claire. We'll make sure to get that to you via email. Oh, great. So um, can you like, talk about the DOT's plans around the ASAP or All Stations Access Act or Access Program? Yeah. Um, as I mentioned before, the Notice of funding opportunity is coming out this month. Um, in fact, I just reviewed like a uh, draft of it today. So the announcement will be coming out and the notice of funding opportunity will also be coming out. And that really um, talks about how it's going to work. But it's uh, it's funding to bring legacy stations up to... Um, snuff in regards to their accessibility i think there's like 25 percent of the stations that are not accessible and so that money was specifically targeted in the bipartisan infrastructure law toward bringing those stations up to accessibility so it's it specifically says in the funding opportunity uh that none of that money can be spent on um bringing a station to be partially accessible, they have to become fully accessible to use the money. There's also a match requirement. Like I think it's like 20% uh, match requirement in that. And there's uh, also like an opportunity to use that money to do planning to uh, make stations accessible. So those are some things that I would just kind of highlight around the funding opportunities. So you, you could use it to do some planning, but you can't use it to just make a station partially accessible, like build a ramp that goes nowhere kind of a thing. I mean, um, so, but the, you'll see the funding opportunity come out like uh, either next week or the week following. Okay, Claire, I think you're up. 
Oh, thank you, Becky. I apologize. I lost my place on the list. Um, and this is Claire, just as before we move on as a brief intermission, I just want to remind people that as we hear Kelly speak, if this is um, triggering any questions or you just have any questions elsewise um, pertaining to Department of Transportation, again, please email them to advocacy at acb.org. That's advocacy at acb.org. So when we have some remaining time, we can answer questions that you guys have. Okay, um, so Kelly, in June, the California Public Utility Commission's certified an autonomous uh, vehicle provider to begin charging fares for trips taken by AVs in San Francisco. So how is the Department of Transportation working to ensure that AVs are accessible to people who are blind? And how are state and local governments um, and I should say, how can we prevent state or local governments from placing licensing barriers or other restrictive requirements in place that would uh, prevent somebody with a disability from utilizing this new form of technology? Yeah, well, currently we don't really have any authority to uh, to prevent them from doing it. Um, or to re require them to work with us. That's why I mentioned earlier, uh, it's probably gonna require some legislation to give us the authority to do that. Now we have been working on this. The I know NHTSA or the National Safety Transportation uh, folks are doing some research around this and they, they can require that the uh, vehicle make meet safety requirements. So um, if the California folks, if their vehicle is not meeting safety requirements, there's there's a avenue there to stop that. And I don't know if uh, lack of the accessibility of the interface with with the vehicle would, would make it unsafe, but that might be something to look at. But what we want to do is make sure that all of those vehicles are universally accessible to all people with disabilities. Uh, we will be announcing this. I don't know if you guys are aware that uh, the department back in 2019 announced uh, uh, inclusive design challenge that uh, was $5 million and people could uh, basically develop accessibility modifications to um, autonomous vehicles and submit them to the department as part of this challenge. And they did. And we went through, I think we got around 45 uh, submissions uh, those were narrowed down to 10 finalists. They were uh, each awarded 300000 and then asked to uh, continue to work on their uh, proposals and uh, resubmit. And then we narrowed that down to uh, three winners. And the winner will get a million dollars. The second uh, place will get seven hundred thousand, and the third place will get three hundred thousand. Those winners are also going to be announced this month, uh, and there will be a basically all the winners 
really form a uh, accessibility modifications for really all people with disabilities. So uh, all of those are covered in the winters. Um, but that's really kind of what we're headed for too, is universal access. Now there's the policy at the department has really kind of been uh, to move forward slowly on this. So uh, on autonomous vehicles, and I think it's mostly because of safety concerns, but yeah, the individual states are kind of doing their own thing. Um, but I do think you could file an ADA complaint if they put uh, restrictions in place about like having a uh, a driver's license that would keep you from doing that. Um, that's not been tested in court or anything yet. So uh, it, you have to see where it goes with that. But there are some people who think that that would be a violation of the ADA. Great, thank you. Um, so our next question is, ACB and our partners, including NDRN, <laughs> where I work, are urging the Department of Transportation to create enforceable regulations for websites, applications, and online services. And at the same time, additionally, HHS and Department of Ed are also in the process of updating their regulations under Section 504 of the Rehab Act, um, including accessible information and communication technologies. Um, how is the Department of Transportation ensuring that people with disabilities have access to all the information and communication technologies available from transportation providers on websites, applications, and online services? So, um, as I as I mentioned in the uh, implementation of the bipartisan infrastructure law, uh, all of those federal contractors that we're going to contract with are going to have to meet the requirements of the ADA, and that's going to include, of course, making their information and uh, the way that people get information accessible. Um, and adhering to 508. So that will be included in any funding uh, contracts that we have with providers. They'll be uh, required to do that. Uh, the other thing I forgot to mention in the priorities um, is as well as like a department-wide um, enforcement of ADA and uh, 504 and the Air Carrier Access Act. Also, uh, one of the other priorities that I have in those is to make sure that all of the information and meetings that the department holds are accessible to all people with disabilities. Um, it's not there yet. It's, in fact, it's not probably close. I think the website is pretty close to being uh, compliant with ADA and 508, but um, the way that we uh, provide interpreters and CART at meetings certainly is not there yet. So, so I'm gonna I'm gonna turn this over to Clark Rockfall now. Hi, Kelly. This is Clark Rockfall, and because Ray Campbell is our our mic runner, I'll ask a question that I know is. No, who is it? Oh, it's Michael. Excuse me. Well, I'll still right. I'll still ask Ray's question for him. Um, <laughs> So Kelly, this kind of dovetails on the, the last question related to online accessibility. Uh, currently, for example, airlines are required uh, 
within you know, Section 508 to make their websites accessible, but this does not extend to their mobile applications. So is our mobile applications for transportation services something that the, the Department of Transportation is considering as they're looking at enforcing accessibility online? I'm having a hard time hearing you too, Clark, but... I think I got it. Was the question around making mobile apps accessible? Yes, and then, and now I'm eating the microphone, so I apologize. Uh, so yeah, the, the question is that uh, the Section 508 covers websites, um, but does not have uh, regulatory requirements for mobile applications. So is the Department of Transportation uh, working to ensure that information provided by airlines and other transportation providers through mobile applications will also be accessible to people with disabilities. So, uh, again, this is probably a question that is better for Blaine Workley to answer. Uh, but my understanding is yes, uh, that they are working toward that and. Uh, working toward requiring it because a lot of people, that's how they access the airline website, especially in airports. So that's my understanding is they are working toward that if they don't already require it. But I can go to Blaine and ask her specifically to answer that question and get back to you on it. Great. Thank you, Kelly. And I'll take one more question from the the emails that we received, and then uh, we'll see if folks have questions here in the room. Um, so the, the next question, uh, so some jurisdictions are getting rid of fixed route public transit in favor of on-demand public transit. And as you're aware, the paratransit rules are geared towards supplementing fixed route public transit. So how can the Department of Transportation ensure that people with disabilities either A, still have access to paratransit services, or B, especially for folks in rural parts of the country, gain additional transportation options in the future? Well, um, we can't require we can't require them to do something that's not required in law. And so, I mean, you're right. If they drop the if they drop the uh, fixed route, there's no requirement to provide paratransit. But any transportation they do provide has to be accessible. So if they go to a demand response, that has to be accessible to people with disabilities, and seems like demand response would actually meet the needs of people better than paratransit. At least the paratransit system I have access to, I would prefer demand response to paratransit system I got. I I don't use it. It's so bad. I don't even use paratransit. It just takes hours to get anywhere and they're late picking you up and late uh, picking you up to take you back home too. So anyway, um, in fact, I think if if you look at public transit, 
the one the least or the worst performing part of, para, of uh, public transit is paratransit. And I think uh, some of the places that have implemented demand response, uh, people with disabilities are really pleased with the way it's working. New Jersey's the one that comes to mind for me because um, that's I think they they may be one of the ones that dropped uh, their fixed route. But I didn't actually know that people were dropping their fixed route. I knew they were expanding um, their uh, on-demand or their demand response stuff. I didn't know they were dropping the fixed route. All right. And do we have uh, our mic runner ready to take questions here in the room? Hello. My name is Kathy Lyons. I am the chair of the Pedestrian Safety Committee of the American Council of the Blind of Western New York. And I wanted to talk about two things. First of all, in the manual on uniform traffic control devices, that's a lot of words that maybe don't say much, but it's the manual for traffic signals and how you make them accessible and all that. So the manual does a good job of explaining what an accessible traffic signal is, but there's no wording in that manual that would require anybody to install one. Now, that might be something for the access board instead of transportation, but I think they need to tighten up that language in that manual. The other question I had is so that... Before you leave that, is that the one that uh, came up earlier, Claire? Um, so you're going to send me that, and so I can follow up on it and then get back to you. Okay. Okay. And my second question is that I've heard that in Sacramento, they have cycle tracks, and there's a trapezoid that separates the sidewalk from the cycle track and if a pedestrian needs to catch a bus that pedestrian has to go over this tra- this cycle track and out into the street to get on the bus and i think that is dangerous i don't understand why cyclists need a raised track those bikes work fine on a flat road or a sidewalk so Say what? Ah, um, is that uh, Ray? Who said that? Okay, Ray said that the cyclists are real good advocates. So those they are, yeah, they call those floating bus stops, and in my mind, that's a nightmare bus stop. And um, so those are the two things that I wanted to call to your attention that are not good for blind people. Thank you. Thank you. So uh, one thing I will bring up, because uh, one of the uh, notices of uh, funding opportunities that uh, just went out was the Safe Streets for All. And that's sort of where this falls in, in regards to funding. And there are some of that that's what I was talking about in regards to some of your organizations may be eligible to apply for some of that. So that safe streets for all, uh, you should look at that because I think it may actually 
help address some of this uh, that you're bringing up with the Sacramento bike or the bike uh, paths. So not not in Sacramento specifically, but you may be able to use that money to make sure that the streets are safe for folks who are blind as well. Thanks, Kelly. Any more uh, questions here in the room? Yes. Hi, my name is Matt Baker. I actually um, work for one of the manufacturers of the accessible pedestrian signals and um, really enjoying being here and listening to the things that are important to you guys. Um, I was just going to help with a couple of the questions there on the MUTCD. So the relationship is between the FHWA and MUTCD. So the FHWA um, puts the MUTCD out. And um, I sit on a committee that uh, we meet twice yearly to talk about what goes in under the pedestrian safety. And so you're right, the MUTCD doesn't require the APS yet. They actually are waiting on the US Access Board to do their final ruling. And then then the MUTCD, DOT, DOJ, you know, is supposed to adopt that is my understanding. And so I guess my question uh, to you, Kelly, is, is, is Pete Buttigieg um, really on board with um, the access board um, finishing their ruling and, and getting this thing uh, going to provide that support and put in, you know, the accessible signals all over the country? Because while that funding is there, that certainly would be a good use of that funding. Um, and we, We've been waiting on the access board public ruling since 2011 when they came out with their proposed guidelines. So we're really hoping that uh, there's a commitment there to get that finalized. Yeah. Um, my, my answer to you is uh, Secretary Buttigieg is actually absolutely committed to accessibility for people with disabilities. Uh and the department is committed to getting these PROAG rules out. Uh, that's why we made it like one of the policy priorities. But I heard that these have been, people have been actually waiting a decade, longer than a decade for this to get out. So I understand the trepidation. So uh, I'm pushing hard. I think too with, with Sachin as the director I think this is one of his priorities at the access board is to get this out. He actually wanted to have this out this summer, but now it's been postponed until, um, until the first of the year. But yeah, Sachin's committed to it. Secretary's committed to it. I'm committed to it. I mean, I can't believe after 33 years or 30, uh, two years of the ADA, we haven't got these out long before now so yeah we're all committed to making sure these get out yeah and the access board this is sarah presley from the access board and obviously we are committed to getting this out and we are working very closely right now with the department of transportation and the department of justice to get these out and as somebody mentioned previously the that these will in some way or other take into account what is in the MUTCD, the, the, dra- the guidelines that are out right now that are not enforceable standards do in fact require that 
accessible pedestrian. I mean, if they weren't, if they weren't guidelines, they would in fact require that accessible pedestrian signals that comply with the requirements in the MUTCD be put at pedestrian street crossings and some other places. But yes, we are definitely working on it. It is definitely a priority. And there are definitely some people at the access board who (laughs) will be pulling their hair out if it doesn't get done soon. Yeah. DOT as well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it really, it, we, and I don't know that there's anything that anybody can do to help right now. We really, it really is at this point, a lot of back and forth between the DOT and the DOJ and the access board, because when we finalize the rule, we want buy-in from the DOT and the DOJ so that, you know, because when we finalize it, that's just ready for them to adopt it. And then, you know, we can't necessarily say how long it's going to take for them, but obviously we all want to get it adopted as soon as possible. So we're trying to have the final rule be something that people are going to, or the other implementing agencies are going to want to adopt quickly. Yeah, my understanding is the the main ones that you're dealing with right now are the Federal Highway. Um, and I just talked to them last week. And once again, encourage them to hurry the hell up, right? Like, long overdue, let's get it. In fact, I don't, it seemed like we all, had pretty good consensus going and it sounds like uh all the back and forth is leading to uh this these being finalized soon so and this is clark i I will add that uh acb uh we we did provide comments to the department of transportation regarding the mutcd those comments came from uh, our Pedestrian Environment Access Committee, of which uh, Becky Davidson, to my right, is the chair, and and Kathy Lyons is on that committee, and uh, Chris Bell, and many others. And those those comments were filed, and then they were shared along with a letter to the to Secretary Buttigieg as well. So we, as advocates, we've done what we can do for now. Uh, now we're kind of waiting and seeing, you know, waiting with bated breath to see what comes out of the the access board and ultimately in the MUTCD. Yeah, and Clark, that that letter was one of the first, you know, I got a copy of it, and that letter was one of the first things I got while I, when I came to the department. So I remember it. <laughs> yes, <laughs> hopefully the, uh, you know, the 77 pages of comments were memorable as well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Kelly, there's a, another question that we have here from over email, and it's asking whether the Department of Transportation has any jurisdiction over the accessible uh, the accessibility of information provided online by bus companies, interstate bus companies, regarding their websites, reservations, um, complaints, and refund processes. Uh, I don't, I do not know the answer to that question, but I believe we do, but I can find out for you. Great. We'll be happy to follow up with you on that one. Uh, I'll take another one here from email and then we'll go back to the room. Uh, We've gotten several questions about filing complaints about airline travel. And we know that that can be done through the office of aviation and consumer protection. So we'll be sure to share uh, information for filing a complaint about airlines. One of the questions that stood out to me, though, 
was um, about accessibility in the way people with disabilities are treated when traveling through security checkpoints. Uh, so is there partnership or collaboration on training or are there is there a recourse for people with disabilities if they feel like they've been discriminated against uh, when passing through TSA or security checkpoints while traveling? No, we have, we have no authority there. So we, we have authority in the airports and there's actually a bunch of money that's coming out in the bipartisan infrastructure law to do modifications to airports. And that includes, um, at least my understanding is that's going to include relief areas. So um, I think you'll see a bunch of improvements to the airports. And we have authority over airplanes as far as the air carrier access app and airlines. But we have nothing over TSA. And believe me, I share your frustration and how people with disabilities are treated. I get patted down every single time I get on an airplane and the pat downs have become more and more intrusive as the years have gone by instead of better. And I, when I was at nickel, I had numerous meetings with TSA and asked them to consider other ways to, to do this versus uh, just uh, patting people down all the time. Cause it, it doesn't really even uh, contribute to the safety of the airplane. Really, it just gives people a false sense of security. It doesn't really, the pat downs don't keep people from taking something on board. So, um, not not when you're traveling in a wheelchair. I'll just tell you that the pat downs don't stop stop that. So, yeah, I've done a lot of work with TSA to try to fix that, and that hasn't gotten me very far. So, this is Becky. Um, there is a, and some of you here may be aware of it, there is a TSA coalition um, on um, disability, people with disabilities and medical conditions. Um, the person who is the outreach person for that is Susan Buckland, who I understand is not a relation, Kelly. Um, but anyway, um, they meet they have conference calls every couple of months and they, they do distribute what to expect emails pretty much every month. Um, there are policies in within the TSA relating to how a person with a service dog is to be screened um, and a number of other things. Now, whether those hold carry any weight or not, sometimes it appears to me that it remains to be seen um, that what when I hear from people about their experience, I usually tell them that the most consistent thing about the TSA is that they're inconsistent. Um, and some of that is by design, but not most of it. So there is something called TSA cares. Um, and it, it's a, it's, it's a service that you can um, contact ahead of time for an escort through the TSA screening, if you need it. And, and it's also a, a way to file a complaint. Um, and the other thing that they did implement is at every airport, there are people who have received additional training for screening for people with disabilities. They're called passenger support specialists. So we're told that if we run into a problem, 
um, with our TSA screening, especially if it relates to, to our disability and how we're treated, treated, that you should ask for a passenger support specialist to intervene. Um, so those are the those are the things that have happened over the past several years that that this coalition has been in place. Um, so that might be helpful. Yeah, and I, I was a member of that and for years. And Susan is not a relative. Yeah, she's a she's a really good person. I like Susan a lot, and uh, she has a disability, so she kind of gets this stuff. But. Um, I, I never felt like too much stuff got done by the by the coalition. Um, there's mixed reviews on TSA cares, um, but yeah, you should still request assistance from a passenger support specialist. All right, and do we have any other questions yes. here in the room? We do. My name is Chris Peterson. I am from Minnesota, and I've been a guide dog user since 1996. And I am very concerned about guide dog or service dog denials from private rideshare companies. Although I think this is an extension of a larger problem that started with taxi companies uh, years ago. I've you know, always experienced this off and on with taxi companies. But what concerns me more is that paratransit operators are contracting with taxi companies and rideshare companies. Uh, where the drivers uh, will oftentimes, you know, deny us access uh, outright or just drive by and cancel on us without telling us why, uh, just when they see that we have a guide dog. So does the DOT have any authority over this or are there any federal agencies that are working on this very, very serious problem? Well, I, I think there's a lot of people working on it. Um, it's a violation of the ADA. Uh, Claire, you and I have worked together with on Uber for a long time to try to f fix this stuff too. I, I, um, I mean, I think there's commitments on the part of the company and certainly is part, you know, the bus operators, I think are committed to ending that practice, but uh, it still can seems to continue to go on. Um, and I know it's a pro I know it's a real problem. I've I've witnessed it, so I, I do know it's a problem. Um, but it's not it's not really under our authority at the DOT. It's really under the authority of the Department of Justice. This is Claire. Uh, DOJ was working on a, a different, but a related Uber issue that they're bringing to court that had to do with the extended wait fees those of us were paying if it took us longer to find our rides, which for most of us with disabilities, especially those of us who are blind, it's hard to find the driver. And so the clock starts ticking and you pay additional fees. So anyway, they were working on that lawsuit against Uber, which I know and recognize is not service animal related. Um, but one thing we talked about at my job at least was while the door is open with Uber, let's raise noise. Um, so for that lawsuit, you could report um, violations of that problem. I believe it was uber.fee at doj.gov. I'll look it up and confirm if that's right. But all that to say, we thought our, our, our plan of action was, well, if they're taking our emails and complaints on that issue, let's carpet bomb them with complaints about service animal denials as well. So again, I recognize it's not the same issue, but we were also trying to use that as an in to say, let's just flood them with ongoing Uber complaints as well. 
So hopefully that helps. Great. Any other questions here in the room? Clark, this is Michael Byington. We, we in my state have a couple of uh, jurisdictions that have uh, licensed and uh, contracted with the scooter companies. And uh, there are obviously issues concerning sharing uh, the pedestrian way with motorized scooters and the people who are driving them and may not be well qualified to do so. But a bigger problem that has been called to my attention and and that I have seen as a certified orientation and mobility specialist is in our downtown area, scooters are very frequently parked across detectable warnings, parked across wheelchair ramps, parked in ways that completely restrict the accessible path of travel that is required. And I'm wondering if there is any effort to regulate uh, the use of those items. My second question concerns is, and this is a very quick one, um, we have paratransit providers in a couple of jurisdictions that have extended the window uh, at which they say one has to be prepared to receive their ride from 30, sec- 30 minutes to 40 or 45. And I'm unaware of a change in the regulations that allowed that, but I may have missed it. Thank you. So the the answer is that no, those regulations haven't changed. So that that's not a change on the federal part. So the what they they call those things micro mobility. I just found this out. So the scooters and stuff like that are called micro mobility, and there's there's quite a push to use micro mobility even more because of high gas prices and. Uh, the efficiency of them. And I, I bring it up every time this topic comes up at DOT about those things being left in the path of travel. Uh, they also like the place where I put my ramp out on my van uh, onto the sidewalk, they, they get left there too. So you can't even get out of your vehicle. So yeah, it's uh, it's a major problem. But it's not under our authority. I, I do have to say that it's not DOT. It's that, again, that's a Department of Justice uh, issue. Okay, thank you. And Kelly, this is Clark. One more question over email uh, regarding the all stations access program. And the questioner is asking whether this extends to. Uh, commuter rails and subways in addition to uh, you know the the legacy or historic uh, interstate or Amtrak rail services the answer is yes so regardless of the the type of rail if it's a a historic station that is inaccessible they can apply for the these funding grants to improve the accessibility of the stations. Yeah, they call them legacy stations. So mostly their stations were built prior to the ADA, but um, you'll notice in the funding opportunity announcement that it it does extend to subway stations. So if there's like a lack of an elevator at a legacy station in the subway, the funding could be used to, to fix that. 
But again, it couldn't be used just to do an elevator. And you'd have to make the entire station accessible. You see what I'm saying? So uh, they don't want you to make it, put an elevator in, and then you get up to the, or get down to the level that you need to get to, and then you still can't board the train. I mean, so, yeah, the whole station needs to be made accessible. But it does extend the subway and uh, other rail. So... Great. And uh, this one is not from the audience, but that's part of the privilege of being up here on the dais. Uh, Kelly, in May, uh, ACB was excited to be part of an announcement that a, a service called WayMap for accessible indoor-outdoor uh, navigation and wayfinding will be deployed in the entire uh, Washington DC or you know, Washington metro area transit system, including all train stations and bus stops of the system. Uh, just curious if uh, to hear your thoughts on the use of technology to make uh, indoor navigation and wayfinding through public transportation systems more accessible, whether that be rail or uh, airports. Yeah, I, I think we should expand it. Um, so the one of the other things that I actually have made part of the priorities is uh, data. Uh, there's a lack of data and filling in data gaps at the department. So a lot of the data gathering that we do, like on bus ridership, on plane ridership, on uh, pedestrian deaths on whatever you might want to say. Um, we, a lot of that, we don't have statistics on people with disabilities. So I really want us to start gathering that kind of data because it's hard to improve when you don't have like a baseline data to, uh, measure where you're at. So, uh, and the second purpose of doing that data gathering is to make wayfinding better. So, uh, we just, I just talked to, uh, a group at the department, um, that's going to start doing, uh, geospatial, um, data collection. Uh, and it's for that express purpose to try to make wayfinding, uh, better and more accurate and more available. So, yeah, I think it's, uh, I think it's gonna really kind of be the way of, uh, the future, really. That's how people are going to plan their trips and all kinds of stuff. So, great. Thank and I you. did know about the announcement, Clark. I just I had a conflicting uh, thing that I could not get out of, and I could so I couldn't attend. But I did talk to Verizon about the announcement and stuff, and was aware of it. So. Well, that's great. They, they're a great partner in nurturing that technology. And we, we were excited that uh, a representative from the White House uh, Domestic Policy Council was present as well. All right. Uh, any more questions here in the room? I'm seeing any. Somebody wave your hand if you've really got a question. All right, and I will ask my my fellow moderators. Claire, do you have any questions that you would like to ask? 
No, I, I don't think I have any questions. Um, everything's been really interesting, Kelly. If we want to learn more about the priorities that you were talking about that you guys have focused on, is there any resources or materials that we can access to kind of see what's going on at DOT as it evolves? They are currently uh, on their way to the secretary for clearance. And so um, as soon as they are um, uh, signed by the secretary and adopted by, then they'll be adopted by the department. Uh, I will definitely make an announcement that goes out to everybody. So you'll, uh, and then I'll have, uh, materials available on the website and all kinds of stuff in regards to priorities as well. So, Great. Thank you. And in the meantime, um, my email address is kelly.buckland at dot.gov. Everybody got that? K-E-L-L-Y-B-U-C-K-L-A-N-D, correct? Correct. Is it Kelly Buckland or kelly.buckland? Kelly Dot Buckland. It is. Okay. Excellent. Um, I don't think we have any more questions. If there's a question that we did not ask that you sent in, uh, we'll respond to you um, in writing. And Kelly, do you have any closing remarks? Uh, just that I will get back to you on the questions that I didn't have answers for. Uh, so Claire, you'll email those to me and I'll, and I'll get back to I'll follow up and get back to you guys about those. Yes. And just uh, thanks for having me. It's been a real pleasure to be with you guys tonight. Um, just as a uh, BTW, it's raining in D.C. too. So <laughs> I was going to say, when you guys were complaining about Omaha, I, I kind of smiled and said, well, we're having it here too. So. <laughs> It's everywhere. I have yeah. to say, though, in the middle of the wind and rain, it was kind of interesting walking across that sky bridge. <laughs> pretty cool. Pretty cool stuff. All right. Well, I think we're ending a little bit early, but I don't know that anyone will complain about that. So um, I really appreciate all the questions, the thoughtful questions from the room and from the email. And I hope everyone who's been listening on ACB Media um, and Zoom um, Feel comfortable emailing your questions to advocacy at acb.org. That's it. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and some of those questions will probably be referred to either the pedestrian environment access committee or the transportation committee. We're working on these issues as well. So uh, we thank you all for coming. I hope you're all having a great convention and everybody stay safe out there wherever you are and keep on advocating. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Kelly. Bye, everybody.